Amen. Reuben and I, um, we rode home from our presbytery meeting yesterday, a long drive from Medford, Oregon, and uh, most of the day and even into the evening. And uh, we kind of, what we did among chatting most of the way was kind of share music with each other. And I got to tell you, one of the, (laughs) it was a joy to hear a lot of Reuben's music. Um, I probably didn't hear all, I know I didn't hear all of it, but, uh, but one of the fun parts was, you know, the music's playing and I could look over or even just hear him just kind of singing the words. And these psalms that we've been in, these last uh, <laughs> season, they are the songs of ascent. They are the series of psalms that the, the Israelites would sing on their way to the festivals in Jerusalem, often days walk, days journey. And they'd sing these psalms. These, this was the road music, the kind of music that you just know the lyrics and they get in your soul and when you hear them again, you just, you, you know it. And it's also that kind of music that we have in our lives where those words, they kind of give us lenses on everything. And in very real sense, this series of psalms is a discipleship course for following God. And we come now to Psalm 131, which is a word about humility, about who we are. So listen now to the word of God, Psalm 131. A song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, (laughs) guide us as we look into your word to understand it to understand you and to understand ourselves. Lord, use my words, guide our minds, guide all of us as we seek you in this time. And we stand before your word. In Jesus' name, amen. God is always working on us. He's always working on us. And in the heart of his work, is this. He's helping us know who we are. We're always working on on, on figuring out and remembering who we are. And the purpose of this is so that we would neither think too highly of ourselves nor too little of ourselves. But we come to the realization that we are our real self when we are seeing ourself through our relationship with God. 
when we see who he is, then we see ourselves most clearly. But it's something that we're always working on because it's not easy. It's not easy to see it, and it's certainly not easy to remain there in this world. Think of the disciples. Years after literally being with Jesus, walking with him day by day, the whole time, full time, you think that they would know who they were and their place in this world. But they start fighting. They start fighting among themselves about who's the best, who's the greatest. And Jesus stops them, and he, he puts them in their place. And this is what he tells them. He says that they must be like little children. It's what we started the service with today. Elsewhere, Jesus describes how the healthy tree, the, the healthy person, the healthy vine, it, it needs pruning. These trees, these vines, they are rooted in God but to be healthy, they need to be pruned. We, we, can't, we can't grow too far away from our roots in God. Eugene Peterson describes Psalm 131 saying that it prunes away our unruly ambition and infantile dependency, what we might call getting too big for our britches and, refu and refusing to cut the apron strings. He says, we are in, a, in special and constant need of expert correction. We need pruning. I, I think of it as a pendulum. The pendulum swings in our lives from thinking too much of ourselves or thinking too little. And we have all of that in us. Some may spend more time with having the appearance of one or the other, they both exist in all of us. Thinking, we're going to focus, but let's start with thinking too much of ourselves because that's where the psalm starts. The psalm starts with a, a statement on pride where the ESV that we read says, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. It's a, it's a specific image that it translates fairly literally, but the NIV in and, I, and New Living Translation translate the image to the point that it's making. My heart is not proud, and my eyes are not haughty. It, it's, this is a psalm of David, remember. David wrote this, and he was known throughout his life for his humility, that he didn't think too much of himself. But think of David. He's the king, a great and successful king, known for, for killing, literally killing his thousands in battle. Remember, they sang about him. He's a, he, he made, and it made Saul jealous. David had to struggle with getting a big head, with getting proud and thinking he's all that. And we see his own corrective in this psalm. His heart is not lifted up. His eyes are not proud. Arrogance is, is corrected in this phrase, my eyes are not too high. This, this pride and this haughtiness, these first verses are saying that he's not arrogant. 
Arrogance is, is pride in relation to others, thinking ourselves better than another. Now, Paul makes it clear in Philippians. Paul makes it clear in Philippians that we need to not think of ourselves as better than others, but rather give ourselves as others, to, as servants. Just as Jesus humbled himself, that even though he's God, even though he's God, he gave himself for us. David in this psalm is checking himself from, it's, it's an unruly ambition, occupying ourselves with things too great for ourselves. Peterson in his message translation says it this way. He says, he translates this passage saying, God, I'm not trying to rule the roost. I don't want to be king of the mountain. It's ironic because he was the king. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. As I mentioned, Reuben and I were away. We also went to a, a pastor's retreat this past week down in Grants Pass, and it was beautiful, and it was a wonderful time, and it was restful. But the best part of these pastor's retreats is, is being together, being with others in ministry, and sharing the ups and the downs and the trials and the temptations with each other. And one of the many good discussions we had with each other who are at different stages of life and of ministries was about ambition. What are our expectations and our desires that we carry in our life and ministry? Now, modern American culture has made unqualified ambition and growth and productivity and winning and achieving and success, it, we've made it our God by which we measure ourselves and identify ourselves and everything. And it's by that which we identify ourselves, that by which we know who we are. And like, I, you know, I'm a pastor of a church of hundreds, or I'm a pastor of a church of thousands. Uh, let me tell you, ordained ministers are swimming in this water and, and no less subject to this way of measuring ourselves, our lives, our ministries than anyone else. Are we successful? Are we popular and liked? Are we, are we achieving status and prominence by any measures? Dr. Faustus, Faust. Dr. Faustus is a story of a man who became impatient with all the limitations put on him in all the things that he was interested in. He was interested in law. He was interested in medicine. He's interested in theology. But there's limitations in all those places, limitations uh, by justice or, or healing or, or God. So, in, in different forms of the story of Faustus, he makes a deal with the devil to be cut free from every restriction. And so, he broke free from the laws of, of physics, the laws of morality and of responsibility to God. And for 24 years, he played the role of God, being in control 
instead of being in relationship. Exercising power instead of love. But if you know the stories at all, you know inevitably at the end of the time comes damnation. That's the result of the deal with the devil. The story is retold through generations in many different ways. History has always brought us Faustian characters who thought the the rules of creation don't apply to them. Don't think any of us are immune from that at times and places. But now we have become in many regards a Faustian culture, educational models, economic expectations, even popular religion saying, you know, this is all about getting everything that we want, prosperity gospel. It's, it's all Faustian. And too often ministry leaders fall into this too. And when we do, that's when we, we get ourselves in trouble in so many different ways. Now, all of this becomes clear when we think of what, what we are going to call the difference between ambition and aspiration. Now, not all ambition is unruly or unqualified or bad. So let's call for our purposes here the good ambition that we ought to have, aspiration for the moment. We're meant to have an impatience with mediocrity. We are a a dissatisfaction with things that aren't right. And we're meant to have a striving, like Paul says, for the upward call of God. That, that we're going to call aspiration for the moment. That is proper, godly ambition. But this psalm is about the other ambition. It's about selfish pride. It's ambition without regard to God. Ambition, this ambition is an effort of of self-aggrandizement, of making ourselves more and something. Aspiration is an effort to glorify God. One is an effort to clumsily erect a, a tower of Babel. The other is a journey to the Garden of Eden. Leaving that forbidden fruit, that pride, that haughtiness and and unruly ambition behind. That's all of that. That's the picture of what it means to have a calmed and quieted soul that this, this psalm speaks of. Christians are those whose aspiration is to be the person God is making us to be. Who long to hear what he's saying and follow where he leads, and and who have as the object of our deepest love the God who made us and loves us, and and we seek to see ourselves and everyone and all of creation with his and through his vision, and that we would also see ourselves always in that light of God. I love how Peterson describes this person. He says, I will not try to run my own life or the lives of others. That's God's business. I will not pretend to invent the meaning of the universe. I will accept what God has shown its meaning to be. I will not noisily strut about demanding that I be treated as the center of my family or my neighborhood or my work, but seek to discover where I fit 
and do what I'm good at. The soul, clamorously crying out for attention and arrogantly parading its importance, is calmed and quieted so that it can be itself truly. So, on one hand, the pendulum swings toward pride, and we instead are calmed and quieted and humbled, as content as a child. But I could, uh, I could just have this message just be about, uh, about pride, about the pendulum on that side of things, about being us trying to be everything. But and that is an important message in a Faustian world. And I could leave the impression that, though, that if we're not everything, then we are nothing. Those seems to be the alternatives. That's the, that's the game that we play in our lives. We're either full of ourselves or we're nothing. I had a professor who called that worm theology. Worm theology. If we're not gods and as believers in Jesus, we know we're not gods then we are no more valuable than a worm, then we're nothing. And so we bounce back and forth between being everything or being nothing. And I see this pendulum swinging back and forth in our, in our society and in people, and it makes sense in a world that is not aware of the, the reality and the work of God. All or nothing, that's the options. And, e and we are each charged in our world with figuring out what the measures are, who or what gets to say that we are all so that we're not nothing. No one wants to be nothing, but we all know others and, and struggle within ourselves to some degree or other with being nothing. Even those who claim more than anyone else to be everything you're often able to see the fear of being nothing as their driving force. And in the end, in the end, the reality and the inevitability of death confronts all of us, confronts all of us with being nothing. If there's no God and nothing after death, then we are all in the end nothing. But there's a key little word that is used twice in this passage that identifies who, who it is that we're meant to be. It's not nothing. Rather, it is we are weaned children. Weaned child. Seems like an odd picture, doesn't it? That it specif specifies that. You look in all the translations, it's the same thing. A weaned child. So we gotta dig a little deeper into that. What does that mean? Here's why David specifies a weaned child. A child that is still nursing, you know, an infant that's nursing, is, when it is hungry, it cries, and it is focused wholly on its own need, and it cries out in utter dependence and desperation. And if you've ever been a parent, you know that cry. And all they care about is what they need being met as quickly as possible. And that, it seems, is, is all a parent is to a nursing child. A mother is a, a need-filling machine. And a lot of people 
all of us, when we are immature believers, honestly, we can still treat God this way sometimes. All he's there is to take care of our needs. But a weaned child, a weaned child can sit in its mother's arms even when they're hungry, and they can trust. And in that trust, they can love. They're still dependent. They are not capable of surviving and not starving on their own. But, but in trust, now they can focus on something other than their own immediate felt need. They can focus on their love and, and trust in their parent. Even when it appears that need is not being immediately met, a weaned child knows that the parent's not going to let them starve. They can wait. Remember last week? Waiting? Waiting and hoping? That was last week, but the weeks spill into each other. People come to God oftentimes in desperation. That foxhole deal with God when, when the bullets are flying. And last week we talked about crying out, crying out to God out of the depths. The question is, can we grow past that in our relationship with God to where we are no longer obsessed with how God can meet our own immediate felt need, but we can try to get where we see Him, His love and heart for us, and His power and glory in and of itself. That is when our relationship becomes not just about our need, but then, then we can delight in Him. We can love and appreciate and be in awe of God. That's when we can really learn to worship. That's the loving dependence of a weaned child. We are not nothing. We are the loving, trusting believing in the promises of God, beloved children of God. Spurgeon noted that this psalm is one of the shortest to read, but the longest to learn. A short ladder, but one that reaches to the highest height. Peterson describes this as a maintenance psalm. This is just the place God is always working on in us. Uh, the world appears to provide two options for us. Either we are everything or nothing. Either we are provided all the tools to get whatever we want, like money, sex, and power, but these will fail. Or even worse, we may seem to get everything that we're shooting for and find out that it doesn't fulfill us and give us what they seem to promise we inevitably fall into the pit of despair and we are nothing once again. But this, this is a third way, a third way in this psalm. It's the plain way of quiet Christian humility, of knowing who we are in God. Keeping this psalm in front of us reorients us when we're thinking too highly or too lowly of ourselves, and it brings all of our arrogant ambition back to a faithful aspiration. And it lifts us from 
infantile dependency to a childlike trust. And we are left with a calm, quiet, trusting, humble, faithful strength. All of it, not because of who we are, but because we, because we know who He is and what He's done. This psalm, a thousand years before Jesus, points right to Him. Because that's where God is going to make this point that He's making here. That's where God makes this point work. It's where He makes us who we are in Him. Our effort to try to mark ourselves everything, it is the act of trying to take God's place, to take our place as God. Because we don't see or trust Him, we have to make something or everything of ourselves. And the unruly pride of trying to make ourselves, make something of ourselves, is the act of unfaithfulness. It's setting aside our relationship with God. It is what sin is. And the consequence of this sin is death. And death is nothingness. And everyone, everyone who's ever lived knows that at some deep level. That death is nothingness. And it's terrifying. Here's what Jesus did. He who was all, took our nothing upon himself and died for us so that we could be forgiven our sin, trust in him, and be who we are, God's children, inheritors of the kingdom of God, and we can know that's, that's quite enough, more than enough. And we can rest in it as weaned children worshiping him. Oh, that's why this psalm ends the way it does. We know who we are because we know who our hope, who our identity is in. Oh, Israel, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. God, do that maintenance work in us. Help us to know that we're not all and help us to know we're not nothing. But help us to know we are yours. And we can find our identity in you because of what you have done for us. God, identity is such a powerful force in this world, and we can see it. We can see it in all the conflicts going on in our, in our country, in our community, in our families, in our world. But Lord, help us to remain humble and know we are yours because of Jesus Christ and his love for us. He who was all became nothing for us.
God, thank you. Guide us and always help us remember. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.